You're listening to Farm to Table. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Farm to Table, a farm and food systems podcast coming to you from Fayetteville, North Carolina. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Tabor. Welcome to Farm to Tabor. This is the final episode for the season, and today we're doing kind of an odds and ends episode. We're talking with Dr. Alex Tepperman, a criminologist at University of Florida, about something that's been on everyone's minds lately, jailing refugees, how it's impacting rural areas that depend on immigrant labor to survive, and how these rural areas keep making political decisions that hurt not only other people, but their own selves economically. We're also going to talk some of the deep stuff of sustainable food, partly because it's cool and interesting, partly because Alex runs his own podcast and sometimes you forget who's interviewing whom, and his questions run pretty parallel to a lot of the feedback from listeners to this podcast, which is, why does food still suck? The sustainability movement's been around for about 30 years, and we've seen some results, but by and large the food system works just like it did 30 years ago. The gains from sustainable foods are concentrated in a few affluent grocery shoppers, The explanation for this given by the sustainable food movement is often something like subject, verb, subsidies. It's not our fault, it's the man. But as someone who works deep in the guts of agriculture, I see very different dynamics at play. So we're going to get all up in that. Welcome to Farm to Tabor. Today we're talking to the newly minted Dr. Alex Tepperman. Uh, of University of Florida, and uh, we go way back, and can you introduce yourself really quick? Yeah, you bet. Uh, I'm, I'm Dr. Alex Tepperman, um, and uh, soon to be of the University of South Carolina Upstate. Go Spartans! Woo! All right, Dr. Tepperman is here, and we're going to talk about why we keep doing things the wrong way as a group of people and as a society, even though we know there's a better way to do things and we just can't seem to make the switch. Um, Dr. Tepperman works in criminology, which is the science of crime, which is fun. And there's a lot of... Sort of. I mean, I'll tell you, the most annoying thing I've ever seen in a movie was in The Green Hornet when Hmm. Cameron Diaz says that she studied criminology and uh, uh, Rogan... Seth Rogen says, ah, the study of the criminal mind. I oh. just, I wanted to reach into the television and throttle them. I take it all back. Well, so a lot of it is there's <laughs> critical criminology, which is like, what do we consider crimes? How do we handle it as a society? Yeah, that's a big part. That's, that's definitely a really interesting sort of more radical field. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's kind of like the divide between what is free trade and what is piracy kind of thing. You know, um, you know, where do we draw those lines legally? Um, as a society. And then can you tell us a little bit more about what you do within that criminology area? Yeah, well, mostly I do penology. So I study prisons, I study prison systems. Um, I've been studying carceral space. So Mm. the way in which uh, prisons are organized and people move around prisons. Uh, But I also do a lot on um, groups deviants, how people fall into deviant groups, how people make choices. I'm actually excited to talk about choices with you because I I feel like we have a lot of overlap uh, in the sort of thing we consider rational versus irrational behavior. Hmm, Interesting. So just as a quick aside, I've put some material out on Twitter before about 
the role of the farm lobby in Japanese incarceration during World War II, uh, Japanese farmers at that time were quite successful in the U.S. They'd originally come over as farm laborers, and then the American dreamed so hard that they actually became very good farmers, managed to acquire their own land, and their former employers, the Anglo farmers, were not happy about this. And basically, when Pearl Harbor went down, the California farm lobby started sending folks out to D.C. immediately to tell D.C. this is a great reason to put all the Japanese Americans in jail. Their farms defaulted because they weren't able to work on them, and they went up for auction and were taken over by Anglo farmers. So um, I've worked a little bit on just putting some information out there about this is a thing that can happen. Land grabs are real. Uh, the agricultural sector can be a big pusher for them. And I wanted to get your thoughts, Alex, on any overlap between what's happening now uh, with our incarceration of immigrants in, in that former situation. Well, I think, I mean, it's a really interesting comparison because uh, when you're dealing largely with asylum seekers, you're not dealing with a uh, group of uh Landowning, a landowning class. Right, speaking. it's very different. So, really, it, what we see right now is a lot of stories about um, major uh, farm owners uh, who are feeling the hurt of this because mm-hmm. it, it, this sort of behavior on the part of the federal government is going to ultimately end up having a cooling effect. On, um, I would imagine, and this is just speculation on my part. Uh, migrant laborers more mm-hmm. than on asylum seekers. I, I don't think asylum seekers get uh, will uh, be as likely to uh, turn away from moving to the U.S. as people as migrant laborers who may feel that they are going to be uniquely targeted. Now, obviously, we know from hundred whatever years of migrant labor in the Southwest and the South that. Basically, there are no policies that will actually end mm-hmm. uh, seasonal labor because mm-hmm. it is a necessity and it is vital to the economy. Um, but I can't imagine. You know what? It's probably going to be more like it's going to be mm-hmm. more like in the in the early 1930s when the federal government passed this uh, series of repatriation bills in which um, mm-hmm. Mexican and Mexican-Americans were targeted by the federal government uh, for removal. Right. Uh, and more than half a million of them, including like 250,000 American citizens, mm-hmm. were sent to Mexico. Exactly. Um, it's it's going to have more of that effect, which is just it's going to uh, it's going to hurt industry, but not really change the culture of migrant labor. That's my guess. Right. What, exactly. What do you think? Yeah. So I think that's a really solid point about asylum seekers versus your general migrant labor. Is the asylum seekers are not coming to look for work. I mean, obviously they want to work once they get here, but they are on the run from incredible political violence and just drug violence, and so there's not a whole lot you can do to somebody with that on their tail do to persuade them not to come. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. I mean, you can treat them poorly, but that <laughs> is not different from where they're coming from. Sorry. Not different from where they're coming from. So no, exactly. I mean, if, if the only way of preventing people from coming to the United States as asylum seekers is to somehow treat them worse than they're already treated. And once you're in that territory, I mean, that's, that's, uh, We're talking crimes against thought. humanity territory. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. 
Whereas a lot of migratory labor, that's actually been slowing down, like immigration to the U.S. for agricultural labor has been slowing down because things in Mexico are getting better economically. Um, a lot of folks have been sending money back home, and now they have a house back home and maybe some land. Um, so folks who are working in the agriculture sector, because the agriculture sector in Mexico is doing pretty well, are just staying home to work. So a lot of the- So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would, I would say that probably the, the comparison to Japanese internment makes sense insofar as the conditions of the internment itself mm-hmm. make sense. Uh, right. I think Americans don't imagine themselves as people who would have concentration camps or internment camps, uh, and that's why Japanese internment sort of stands out in our collective imagination so much. Mm-hmm. Um, but probably the effects are going to be very, very different. Right. So the the thing that really sticks out most in my mind for both of these situations is that American farm lobbies were pretty firmly behind it. In this situation, I mean, you look at rural areas, and they've been voting very conservative for a long time. And, you know, our current administration was very frank about what their plans were. And they you know, didn't make any difference in their voting. And and this is something you see in farm areas time and time again, is every two to four years, somebody new is elected at the state or federal level, they rattle the saber about immigrants, immigrants stop coming to work and farms hurt. And this happens every two to four years, and they keep voting for folks who put these policies into practice. So, you know, it just happened again, this time on a federal level. And, um, and now there's a whole lot of dismay that this is happening, and they can't find labor. And I just you know, you guys voted for this. <laughs> that's the that's the toughest thing for me as someone who is a professional who works in agriculture. Because there's agriculture is not just made of farmers. There's a whole bunch of folks who make farms work, you know, from obviously the farm laborers. Um, they're farm professionals. They're on the road constantly. They don't own a farm, but the farms don't work without them. Um, you have the folks who own the weed and feed stores and kind of know what's going on in the county. Um, you have for example, custom harvesters, those are folks who just have a combine or harvesting machine and they spend the, you know, the entire, you know, February through November roaming north to south with their combines in crews uh, harvesting for hire. So you have just all kinds of agriculture professionals who don't own a farm, but we make the farms work. And, you know, there's a, there's a big community of us out there. And it's kind of funny because farmers are sort of the voice of agriculture, and yet we're the ones who see multiple farms in multiple regions and can kind of see trends um, in what's going on. But none of the stuff we ever see ever really makes it out into the public consciousness because we're not farmers. Um, but as, a, as an agriculture professional, I see the stuff that happens in the agriculture industry and the stuff it supports. And I'm like, do we love ourselves? You know what I mean? Well, Sarah, let me ask you, if you could get any one piece of information about agricultural professionals out into the public, what would it be? Yeah, we exist. (laughs) (laughs) And let's say that if you could get any piece of information about that you've observed that you think people need to know about farms. Hmm. I I think it kind of just came out there was it's it's not I think folks have this mental image of farmer Charlie gets up, farmer Charlie does his chores, farmer Charlie goes to bed. Um, but in a lot of cases, farms really work more like the farmer is a general contractor. And there's this whole orchestra of events that need to happen. There's a lot of farm tasks that require very specific equipment, like fertilizer application or combines. Some farms are larger and have this equipment. A lot of them don't, and they, they hire someone to come do that for them. And so there's, again, agriculture professionals all over the country kind of making this stuff happen and really making the farms work. And they're kind of the connective tissue that ties the industry together. Um, 
And again, because we work so closely with so many farms across such a large area, there's a lot of information that we have that doesn't get out there, really. I, it, what, what is, why would that be important to an average person? Um, well, I mean, in a lot of ways, migrant farm laborers are migrant professionals. And in, in a lot of ways, I am in that community, that same community that they're in. And we're folks who work in agriculture who aren't depending on an inheritance to make life work. And that can kind of change. I mean, you've seen Game of Thrones, right? Oh, no, no. I, uh, I have a life. Uh, alas, it's okay. But uh, <laughs> for those who are Game of Thrones viewers, I mean, you have various houses battling for dominance. These are folks who own land. These are folks who kind of have plans and dynasties and, and stuff at play. And then there's uh, your uh, your other players like Lord Varys, who's, uh, you know, he's an official in the, in the kingdom. And he, he stays as administrations come and go. And he makes a lot of the things work. And so he has a very different perspective on things because he doesn't have a dynasty that he's battling for. He's just trying to get shit to work. So, <laughs> Yeah. Well, yeah. I guess what I'm trying to get at is, okay, so you you sort of indirectly uh, connected yourself and, and uh, farm professionals to the migrant laborers. Yeah. Uh, and obviously this... there's some huge differences there, but also some similarities. And I... You know, <laughs> I think folks in the ag industry need to be standing up for migrant farm laborers and seeing how much we have in common and why if one of us goes and has problems, then the rest of us do as well. So why do you think uh, there isn't a more concerted effort on the part of the farm industry? You know, honestly, I'm still trying to figure that out for myself because it looks like the connection to me is pretty clear. I think there may be a bit of an issue with... Um, you know, if we can bully farm laborers and keep them scared and illegal, then their labor stays cheap. And I think that may be, I don't know that anybody has planned it out that much in advance. I don't see that much evidence of like really critical long-term planning always. Um, but that is definitely a consequence that you can have when you're constantly marginalizing and criminalizing people for just for coming to work for you is they're scared. And it's easier to cheat them on their wages and it's easier to cheat them badly. And so I think that may be a big part of what's going on. You don't. So you you would feel that there's no sort of paternalism that exists within these industries, like the the uh, the people who run uh, a lot of these farms or most of these farms see migrant laborers as just widgets. Oh, certainly there's a there's a great amount of paternalism. Um, Something I've found is that the farms that are really proficient at treating their workers well, because they're out there, um, are very focused on tactics. They'll say things like, I get my own H2A crew. Like, I go down to Ciudad Juarez and I recruit my own guys, or I go down to Monterey. Um, I take referrals, but I only take one referral from each of my current workers, because if they're getting, if they're sending me more referrals than that, then I know they're running some kind of pay me to get you a referral to a job scam. And I don't want those guys on my crew. They're very focused on tactics. Like these are specific things you do to make sure that your workers are, um, uh, you know, not getting smuggled by coyotes who are taking a whole lot of their money. Uh, make sure your employees are legal um, or like not being treated illegally and that everything is as above board as it can be in a business where there's a, so much illegality. And then there's a lot of folks who, are not focused on tactics, they'll say things like, but we've worked together for years and we like each other. Um, and when your logic is emotional like that, especially when you're talking about an employee-employer relationship, um, 
you know, I think a lot of farmers may not be aware of this because they've only ever worked for themselves or their dad, but you lie to your employer's face to keep your job sometimes and you're nice to them to their face. Um, and that's sure. kind of a foreign concept I found for a lot of farmers. Um, they take everything in the congeniality that they get from their workers very at face value. Um, even though they're not necessarily doing a whole lot of that background work to make things to make sure things are actually working, they just take everything at face value and assume everything's fine. Um, so see, okay. now you're interviewing me, Alex. <laughs> no, well, I mean, really, what you're te- what you're telling me about is weapons of the week here, which is mm-hmm. that you have this group with very few uh, uh, supports, very little in the way of power and leverage who are able to act in a congenial and kind and nice way toward their employers in order to make sure that they can get work, they can get paid, whatever, whatever. Um, Both of the scenarios that you laid out for me, weapons of the week and tactical hiring, Mm -hmm. suggest to me that it makes no sense to support what's going on right now. Both of them seem like they would not benefit from a distrustful and fearful workforce. And what you really want is desperate people who are eager to work for you. Is, is that Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the dream, I guess. Um, agriculture has always been dependent on um, very cheap labor, and it's really shaped the way that we do things. I'll give you an example. Um, we had a cotton combine that could automatically harvest as, as early as the 1830s. There were early cotton combines that early. But because Southern planters had a lot of political power, uh, they didn't need to worry about buying a combine because they could just keep the law in such a way that they either had slaves or they had sharecroppers to do that work for them. And so there is a technology there that didn't get adopted for over a century just because of political power reasons. The idea of a family farm being the ultimate thing to do with your life was very aggressively marketed um, for centuries in American colonization, like before we even became independent from Britain. Because Great Britain had all these poor white people that it didn't care to have around. So it's like, well, let's just throw them in the dumpster in North America. And uh, we have to make them excited to go. So it's easier to get them on the ships. So let's tell them that having a family farm is like the greatest. And there was just this whole marketing push. And, you know, we had posters, go west, young man, every time we open up some new territory about how great life was going to be. So we don't have to deal with you here. And uh, I think that's a big part of how farming came to occupy the position that it has in our society was just really aggressive marketing. Uh, Do you think that that marketing changed after the close of the West or has it been sort of a consistent narrative? Like, because the West closed in what, like 1890? Uh, That was that was when there uh, when the Census Bureau decided there was no more frontier um, how, how, how have things changed? Right. So I think, I think you're onto something really big. There is our dialogue about that never really changed, even though we lost a frontier. Right. So that was kind of the thing was we have just this garbage bin that we can throw people into and they'll get out of our way. It's the frontier. And, um, actually the, I guess the census declared it closed in 1890, but the last big settlement project was actually during the, during the great depression, um, irrigating the Columbia river Valley. So that's kind of like the freshest farm settlement area is inland Washington and Oregon. Um, and it's really interesting because it's only maybe two generations old. It, it's funny because it, it was definitely like a New Deal socialist project. But you ask all the folks out there who are farming and uh, they're like, oh, yeah, it was after World War II to like help veterans out. Mm-mm, that is not what happened. Let's see. So, so uh, OK, then 
so I was just talking to my wife about Archie comics today, and I swear this is relevant. <laughs> um, and and she's like, I never read Archie comics. And I'm like, oh, you'd like them. Uh, and she's like, why? Uh, and, and I thought about it for a second, and I realized, well, really what Archie is is this imaginary any town USA kind of devoid of time, devoid of place. Is this like the devoid- the Betty and Veronica? Archie yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's the one with Archie, Betty, Veronica, Jughead. There it is. All right, um, proceed. It, I believe turned into a uh, television show called Riverdale that yes. does not look or feel anything like the comics. But anyway, yes. the point of the matter is that Archie's been running very, very consistently and successfully for about 60, 70 years now. Mm-hmm. Uh, precisely because it speaks to this feeling of timelessness that you seem to be suggesting is very common with farmers, which mm-hmm. is this idea we want to believe that there is this place, um, the, uh, conceptual and literal place in America where everything's just kind of like fine. Yeah. And I, I think like folks who don't farm need that as well. Like that's part of why that that story has caught on so hard is is what I find is on Twitter when I'm talking about these are issues in farm country. The folks who are most upset about kind of that loss of innocence is not the farmers because the farmers who are paying attention already know what's happening, right? Um, it's the bougies who have been really supporting farmers markets, finding out that they're not the shit, and they're the ones who are really upset. Um, so that's been kind of interesting. Darn it all. Um, <laughs> well, I, yeah, I mean, if you were to give a piece of advice then to someone who wants to do right by farmers but is not prepared to become a farmer, what would it be? Okay, so one of the things I think is interesting about the close of the frontier is shortly after that happened, I mean, you know, every every few years, you know, every couple of decades, I think, we'd have a major financial panic. And that would be a big source of people going further west was, I lost my farm here. It got bought by a land speculator. There's a homestead act. Let me go pick up stakes and try again somewhere else. Like, that was our relief valve. Um as a nation, right? And then the first big economic problem that happens as soon as the frontier closes is what? It's the Great Depression. And so there was no nowhere else left for people to pack up and move to. And I wonder how much that contributed to how badly it went, you know, in the U.S. during the Great Depression, because we had this relief valve we were used to having. And that kept us from really developing any mechanisms to keep financial collapses from happening because we had a relief valve. Why worry about it? And then we lost it. Didn't this, I mean, it's interesting. I would, I would, I mean, contend, whoa. Sorry. <laughs> I would contend that, um, you know, cities became relief valves. Uh, I mean, 1920, mm-hmm. you have the, uh, the census again changes and tells us that the majority of Americans are living in cities for the very first time. Right. Um, I would imagine that's as much a part of, of the the sort of fondness people feel towards farmers as anything. Is this around the same time that there's no more frontier? A few decades later, it's like, well, all of a sudden the country is made up of city people, not right. rural people. Yeah, it's basic nostalgia. It's it's kind of like how most Australians, eighty percent of Australians, live in five cities around the coast, but they're all sure they live on a cattle station kind of deal. Like we have the same thing. Yeah they, they, yeah, they all they all live just outside of Darwin. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I I don't. I 
mean, I don't know how much I would connect the Great Depression to the frontier because, like, it's a lot of stuff that happens in between there. Yeah. Um, I think just, like, the emotional impact of it, less than the financial. Sure, sure. Uh, I mean, the fact that that basically trucking culture develops in, in that time probably had some sort of effect, I would mm. imagine. Sure. Um, but I... I don't know enough about that. Um, but look, I need to know more about <laughs> about the awfulness of farmers markets and how I can do right. Uh, uh, so I don't admittedly go to farmers markets. I'm a horrible monster. That's okay. Um, but <laughs> let's say that I cared more deeply. What what could I do? <laughs> I mean, farmers markets are okay. Like, don't get me wrong. Um, no, history's but, greatest monsters. Go yeah. on. Um, so the the thing about farmers markets is they're just not an effective way to distribute food. Um, there's there's a reason we stopped doing open air stall markets. Um, you know it's it's very challenging for basically any farmer at that scale where a farmers makes a farmers market makes sense to keep the food cool and in good condition. So my experience with farmers markets, particularly in Gainesville, was you go out. It's horrible and hot and sweaty because it's Gainesville. And um, yes. you buy some food that's been sitting out in the sun and you bring it home and the farmer's exhausted because it's hot and sweaty. And, uh, you know, the stuff kind of gets chucked in a bag. I would buy peaches and they're like brown slime 12 hours later. Um, mm, so the yes. ideal is really fresh food and the reality is a little different. And obviously mileage is going to vary. Um, in a lot of cases, it's not the farmer they're selling this stuff, which I guess a lot of people are scandalized by. I don't care. Um you know, like I, I just am there for food because I guess I was a grad student and I was like really focused on the basics. Um, I was just there to get food. And um, a lot of the folks are actually third party vendors. They go to a watermelon farm, fill their truck up with watermelons, go to the farmer's market. And to me, this is like everybody's happy. The farmer gets to focus on farming. Uh, the vendor gets to have a job. I get to go have a fun time at a farmer's market. Um, but I guess some folks are really scandalized by this. Um, cause ultimately uh, farmers spending time on retail just doesn't make sense. If you have a farming skill set, um, it makes sense for you to maximize farming. Um, so there's, there's, there, there's more to it than that, but it's, they're, they're really more tourist traps than they are a good way to distribute food. Um, is, is really kind of what comes down to. Uh, okay. So let's say that I am somehow even more naive than I already am and I feel that oh. I can do some good with yeah. my purchasing dollars what mm. would I do um mm. I'm really not convinced the consumer dollars is effective and then granted this really? is this is because I work in agriculture so if I put an hour in like freaking out over my shopping list versus an hour in of work I can get a lot more done with an hour of work than I can with a shopping list. So that's just not really something that I personally prioritize. So I'm probably a terrible person to ask. Like, um, and especially because a lot of my kind of formative experiences with having a family and having to provide food for that family came when I was a graduate student with no money and no time. So farmer's market is the last thing you can do to make sense. It's not accessible. Oh. oh, yes. I am not asking <laughs> whether farmer's markets are the way to be do best by uh, right. the the world. I I guess I'm asking, let's say that I am a uh, an academic elite <laughs> who lives in a fancy place like Spartanburg, South Carolina. Um, if I wanted to be responsible with my dollars, 
Mm-hmm. Or, you know, like, let's say I'm not going to go out and, uh, how does a non-farmer help just make farming better? Eat a lot of vegetables. I mean, that's eat really kind of, okay. <laughs> the good thing is it's good for all of us, right? Um, that, that's yeah, really, well, mission accomplished. Yeah. And I, I don't know, it's kind of funny because when people say like, don't eat meat, I mean, it's, it's a very negative message. And I'm like, just eat a lot of vegetables because that's, it's going to get the same thing done, right? Um Hmm. But yeah, so like portobello mushrooms instead of meat. Gotcha. Yeah, they're fine. Um, like, don't stop eating meat necessarily. Like, it's it's a very complicated subject with the meat. Um, but in general, more veggies is good, and um, it's it's better for us, and it's better for the land, and all that stuff. Um, Why is it better for farmers? Better for farmers? Uh, well, well for, why is it? Yeah. Why is that a good thing to do in, in within the confines of our discussion? Okay, so say for example, one of our biggest causes of farmland loss is development. Right, farmers mm-hmm. can't make cash farming, so they sell, and the uh, suburb is built on their farm. Right, so that often happens. I'm not saying always because there are exceptions, but that often happens to a farm that was corn and soybeans, or it was, um, you know, pasture cattle or something like that. It's very rare for that to happen to a greenhouse complex because those have a concrete pad and they're a pain in the butt to remove. So, um, so number one, your vegetable farms just make a lot more money per acre. So a family that's farming vegetables or a farm that's growing vegetables um, can withstand development pressure so much better than a corn and soybeans farm. Um, and on the other hand, it's also like it's really easy to turn a corn and soybean field into houses. And it's kind of a pain in the ass to tear down greenhouses or an orchard or something like that. So, <laughs> so it's sort of like a, a backdoor salting the salting the earth. It's a little like, bit, yeah. You salt that house. Use this land. <laughs> yeah, it, it kind of works like that. So crops that come from trees and from greenhouses, and, and granted, the U.S. is terrible at doing greenhouses because we've been so um, into I call it the traveling circus model of agriculture. Um, you'll have a lot of say watermelon farms that have a patch of land in North Carolina, patch in Georgia, patch in Florida, patch in Mexico. And they just kind of move their packing line between their different sites. Um, and for a crop where it's just a big plant like watermelon, that kind of makes sense. But we do that with tomatoes and other things that work really well in greenhouses as well. So we just don't have a lot of the human capital to build and operate greenhouses in the U.S. So here's where it's get compl- it gets complicated, right, is in theory, yes, if you want to support dollars, buy local greenhouse veggies. But do you know how many people here can do that? Not that many. So you can try but it's just not out there because we have a much deeper dysfunction, which is we just have never built the human capital to do this sustainable thing. So, what would the yeah. human capital look like? It would, I, I'm sorry yeah. if these are extremely basic <laughs> questions, but I'm I'm legitimately I, I, this is what people who know nothing about this might ask you. Right. Yeah. No. That's that's cool. Um, that's actually a very deep and very relevant question, right? So, in ag, that's something we're very much trying to resolve. Um, so we have ag schools that train people on greenhouse stuff. Um, but what companies really want is someone who has experience. Well, where are you going to hire someone with experience from? A greenhouse company where they're already working, where that company is very jealous of the talent they've built and are determined to keep them? Good luck. So if you're someone who wants to build or finance a greenhouse, you need to understand that there is no such thing as free, ready to work, wants to leave their job greenhouse growers out there. You have to be willing to invest in that expertise. And yeah, it can be had. You can hire somebody who's had the training professionally, like either like a two-year degree or like a four-year horticulture thing. 
and send them out on an internship. But you're going to have to pay for it one way or the other. And that is something that a lot of folks financing sustainable ag do not understand. Um, we're actually talking about this in the, the podcast that just came out this week with somebody in the greenhouse industry. Um, but that's something that I think a lot of folks not in agriculture, they just expect that skill to be out there because especially the tech guys, right? Um, they're always looking really hard for rock star coders. But let's be honest, like people who do programming are a dime a dozen. So they expect that kind of availability in every other field. And it just doesn't exist in agriculture. And so they're not prepared to participate in this industry. And yet they keep trying. And they're really upset when it doesn't work out the way they thought it was going to. So that's my long form answer. Is that helpful? That's very helpful. I, yeah. I, you know, once you compare it to coding, I, I completely <laughs> understand. Totally Another right. field of expertise for me. Right. Um, no, I mean, that, that makes sense. Um, hmm. Well, so you're saying can't win, don't try. Uh, not can't win, don't try, but the battlefield is not the grocery store. It's the investment bank. Well, okay. I... <laughs> <laughs> Good luck, I, all of us. Believe it or not, Koreans. I have fewer connections there than I do at the grocery store. That's shocking. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it sounds complicated. Yeah. Yeah, it's, oh God. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's so many crops, there's so many regions, there's so many financing instruments, there's so many people involved. There's a lot of moving parts. And so when, and I think that's kind of a bit of why we've been talking a lot about sustainable ag for the last 30 years. And I mean, we've made some gains but there's a lot of things that we should have been able to accomplish with a 30-year run that we have not even started on, right? Um, you know, like, <laughs> we should have started building greenhouse human capital 30 years ago. Uh, we're starting now. Um, and I think a lot of that is because we focused on the consumer as the driver of change. Now, the consumer is a driver of change. Um, but all a consumer can do is say, I want this. There's a big gulf between somebody wanting something and someone actually being able to perform it right? So we've had a whole lot of demand side and we need to really start thinking, okay, we've been having these wants for 30 years. They're not getting filled. Why is that? We have some really deep systematic problems that we've just been trying to chip away at from the, I want this side, but that has done nothing from the, we can make it side. Um, so that's, that's kind of where I'm focused at as a professional. And it's, it's kind of funny because, you know, I talk about what I see on that needs to be made side and then folks because we've all been trained to see it as a consumer-based problem are like but what should i buy and i'm like irrelevant so well uh, okay so let me let me tackle this then as a criminologist ooh. um one of the big problems with prisoner re-entry into society you know after you uh after you serve out your term mm -hmm. is uh getting a job mm -hmm. uh a lot of states have started ban the box movements, which is a movement to get rid of um, the box on an employment form that asks whether you've ever been convicted of a felony, right. because it makes it incredibly hard to get a job. Mm -hmm. uh, and because it's so hard to get a job for many people re-entering society, they end up taking jobs in very remote parts of the cities in which they live. Mm -hmm. They often can't afford a car, so they have to like take public transit and it takes like two hours to get out there and it takes, right. you know, they have to get a cab to take them the last little bit and they hardly make any money, right. but it's the only job they can get. And then the only thing you can do to support yourself is selling drugs. So here we are again, right? Sometimes. Uh, mm -hmm. the, but I, so 
how much of the problem with human capital do you think the fact is that there there's a certain geographical inaccessibility to working on a farm? A hundred percent. That's a huge part of it. And I think that's a big part of why migrant labor is such a big part of it. It's not that the work is hard and dirty, right? You know, like we're living here in Fayetteville, home to Fort Bragg. We can hear the artillery explosions on a regular basis. Um, it's 50,000 soldiers. Soldiering is a hard, dirty, difficult job. And yet we got 50,000 dudes just at this base alone signing up to do it. Um, the issue with farm work is not that it's hard. The issue with farm work is that it's remote, that you have maybe two to six weeks at a time. And so you have to drop your entire life and just go, you can't live in a hotel. You know, you can't pay for that on apple picking wages. Um, so you got to find somewhere to live, um, you know, <laughs> that's cheap enough to make that work. Yeah. It's a whole thing. It's a whole lifestyle. And you have to be able to just piece out of your family life. Like you can't do that if you're raising children. You know, there's all kinds of things that migrant farm labor does not lend itself well to. Um, and I think that's why uh, immigrants tend to be kind of the dominant labor supply source there is like, look, I already left my home country. Uh, <laughs> don't really have anywhere else I have to be right now. I can be on the road. Um, so you're looking at in terms of, you know, like, hey, if we want to talk about let's hire inmates. So that's actually a pretty popular thing to do in the like the restaurant industry is you'll get restaurants who are like, hey, we're going to hire inmates because um, restaurant kitchens has kind of always been full of inmates. Or, or former inmates? Former inmates, or are yeah. they still current inmates? It depends. It depends. There's like some work okay. release programs and things like that, but a lot of, lot of ex-cons. Yeah. Um, and farms are working on it as well, but like you mentioned, it's a totally different situation because their labor needs are very seasonal. Um, so it's not like, oh, when I get out of prison, I can just get a job. Like, no, apple season's three months away. Um, that kind of thing. Um, and they tend to be very remote. And so like for migrant farm labor to work, you have to own a car on a migrant farm labor salary. Um, and if you've already been poor for a long time, you don't have a car that works and can do that for you. So, um, I think that's stuff that folks do not recognize (laughs) with migrant farm labor. And so they just kind of default to complaining about kids these days, not wanting to work. Um, but yeah, so that's that's the reason greenhouses are really great is because it's year round and you can just hire people whenever they're there and whenever you need them. You don't have to deal with this two to six week season slot. So let me ask you this then. Is it does it make any financial sense to try and find more densely populate, populated areas for greenhouses? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, that's kind of where they tend to thrive is in uh, areas where a traditional farm like corn and soybeans would not be able to pay the rent. Um, you're closer to your es- your destination markets, so the produce is still in good shape when it gets there, and you have a lot easier time with hiring. So closer to urban centers is really where greenhouses thrive. Well, then why aren't we doing that? Because they're hard. <laughs> well, life's hard. I mean, uh, you know, I, I guess uh, I guess I'm you know I guess I'm just seeing a, uh, a, a an interesting open an aperture. Right. Uh, but, uh, yeah, no one wants to do it, apparently. Yeah, so the I'll kind of give you the long version. There's a – because you haven't enough enough of that already. Um, there are some greenhouse companies in the U.S. To date, they've been mostly run by, like, Dutch and Italian immigrant families. Um, you know, four to six generations later, they're still very proud to be Dutch, very proud to be Italian. Like, they're kind of the powerhouse of the U.S. horticulture industry um, because, like – the UK didn't really have a big veggie growing tradition. You know, Holland and Italy did. And so the folks who came over had those skills and they're, they're still doing it. So they're family owned businesses and they're not 
venture based. They grow, I guess, what they call organically in the finance industry, which is they they expand based on profits they've already had and kept, um, and a little bit of lending. It's not venture backed, right? So there's only a certain pace at which they can grow. Um, so that's a big part of why. I mean, they're there, but they're a pretty small part of our market, and they're kind of constrained as to how fast they can grow. So the tech industry and venture capital is trying to fill the gap, but those guys don't know shit about growing plants. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, I work with some of them and I've had some clients that I have been very impressed by, but there's still a learning curve they have to go through. And they all talk a great game about how we're going to explosively expand. And I've yet to see that in any of them because there's a lot of stuff you got to figure out first. So there's... Um, in order, There's only one herb these guys know about. Yeah, that's that's kind of a thing, right, too, is a lot of the human capital is going over there as opposed to food. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, uh, so, look, this is maddening to me because I want an easy solution. <laughs> right. I was promised a consumer-based solution that I could enact in the grocery store. Exactly. Why can't Why can't I just do some sort of grandstanding gesture and make everything right? Right. I mean, you could have become an investment baker, done cocaine for 10 years, and then transition into, you know, like greenhouses, and people would shower you with money. But alas, we did not make these choices. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that my nose could take the beating uh, of a uh, being an investment banker. That's career, yeah. That, that, that's a joke about cocaine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you for that criminology professor. No, it's very good. I mean, everything I know about investment banking, I, I view through the lens of RoboCop. So uh, take that for what you will. Why not? Um, yeah. But yeah. Yep. So that, that's where we're at. So, I mean, we really want, again, so we've been talking about improving agriculture for 30 years, but there's some really deep social issues underlying that, which is like, hey, we haven't been investing in workers for decades. Why are we going to start now? That's just not even something that employers realize you can do. But to take care of plants, you have to take care of the people who take care of the plants and grow their capacity. And that's just something that takes time. So you have to grow the growers. You have to grow the bankers who understand how to finance this stuff. And so it's it's so much bigger than just, you know... Um, I just want to grow it at the grocery or find it at the grocery store, right? There's there's so much more to it behind that. Um, yeah, so that's the news from Lake Wobegon. There it is. That's Farm to Tabor Season 1. Thank you so much for listening. The next few weeks, we'll be doing all those nice podcast-adjacent things that you're supposed to do, like getting it on iTunes, doing a website, getting transcripts on there for folks who want to read instead of listen, making sure it's on all the other apps, all that good stuff. And also coming down the pike, TBA, I'm working on a season two and possibly a crowdfund for that and a book proposal. I want to thank you all so much for listening and for your support. The sustainable food movement has a long way to go, which can sound really depressing, but it also means there are so many opportunities to make things right that we ain't even tried yet. We are only getting started. And knowing there's a whole bunch of folks out there who are also excited about digging deep and getting into those next layers is just really, really cool. So, Farm to Tabor is signing off. Let's keep moving forward. And hey, U.S. listeners, yes, you, call your Congress and your Senate reps and make some noise about jailing refugees, because that shit is not okay. Special thanks to Revolutionary Coworking in Fayetteville, North Carolina for recording space and to Lauren Harris for audio production.